Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you this morning to open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And, uh, and certainly we aren't going to get to everything that I would like to in these verses. So if there's a few things you're like, well, we didn't get there, we didn't get there. Well, we only have so much time. But Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This is, this is part 2 of John's vision of the heavenly temple. In chapter 4, if you remember, John was taken up, taken through an open door, and there inside he sees the throne of God in his temple. He sees the red upon it like the blood shed for atonement on the ark. He sees the rainbow surrounding it, reminding us that though we ought to perish for our sins, we have received mercy and live. He sees the thunder and lightning coming from the throne, a reminder of Sinai and the Lord's assurance of justice. And around the throne, four living creatures sing as they surge through the skies, holy, holy, holy. The elders surrounding the throne falling down in worship. And it, it all serves to remind us of a couple of things. For one, our sins have been atoned for. And though we have no right in ourselves to approach the throne of God, because of His grace towards us, we have been made acceptable in His sight. We can now draw near. It also reminds us that we must draw near with reverence. We can come, we can come with full assurance. We can come knowing that our sins have been washed away and cast into the depths of the sea. We can come knowing that we are accepted in Christ and we can come with confidence, but we cannot come with arrogance. We draw near knowing that we will not be turned away, but we do so with respect and with worship. And most importantly, it reminds us of the sovereignty of God. He is far greater than any of us could comprehend or could imagine. He is far wiser, more powerful than any earthly sage or king. He has absolute authority over all things He has made, and He exercises His will supremely in every corner of His, of his creation. Not a, a sparrow falls to the ground apart from Him. Not a hair falls from your head that has not been ordained to fall. Not a speck of dust sails through the air apart from the path that divine wisdom drew. Everything in all creation acts always according to the will of the Creator on His throne. And all things are in His hands. And because He loves us and because of His many promises, we can trust Him and entrust ourselves to Him. Knowing these things, more importantly, knowing the promises and the God of these promises, it ought to give God's people a great confidence about the future. We know who God is. We know Him in John 17. This is eternal life, to know Him and the One whom He has sent. We know all things come from Him and are for Him. And because He is for us, we do not need to be afraid. God's plan moves forward according to His will and nothing can stop it, derail it, or hinder it in any way. And so we don't need to fear any painful trial or persecution that comes. We can entrust ourselves, body and soul, to God and entrusting ourselves to Him and to His goodness. Not only do we need not fear, but we can rejoice. That's the, the thrust of chapter 4. And here in chapter 5, the focus shifts. Another enters the picture. The, the champion, the worthy one, and we read about him in Revelation 5, 1 through 14. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. O oh Lord, You are the worthy one. We thank You that You are on the throne. And I pray, Lord, that You would... Lord, that You would help us this morning as we search Your Scriptures, Your Word given to us. Lord, help us to see what You would have us to see. Help us to know You better than we do now. And I pray that You would give us a great vision of Christ, that we would see Him that we would see Your Son and knowing Him, that we would trust Him. That we would trust Him. Thank You that we can come before You, Father. Thank You that we can draw near and that You do not turn us away. Thank You that our worship is acceptable in Your sight. And Lord, I pray that You would help us and Lord, help me to preach this morning. Lord, I need You. Apart from You, I can do nothing. Apart from You, Lord, none of us can do anything. But in You and through You, what is not possible? What is Your arm not strong enough to accomplish? We thank You, Lord, that our great hope in all things is in You and Your mighty promises. It's in Your name we pray, and it's to You we look. Amen. If I asked you, what is the most common title of the Lord Jesus in the Bible, you would probably give an answer in the top three. Lord, by far and away, is 
the first. He is called Lord hundreds of times in the New Testament. Next is Christ or Messiah. Again, hundreds of times Jesus is called, uh, given this title. Savior after that. And then there are other titles like the Son of God or the Son of David. Or there are titles that He's really only called once or twice, but they're so charged with significance about His ministry and about who He is and about what He came to, accompl to accomplish that they are immediately recognized as glorious titles of, Christ, of Jesus. Titles like the Good Shepherd or the Light of the World or Emmanuel. But if I asked you, what was the most common title that Jesus used for Himself? What would you say? Do you know? What title did Jesus prefer when speaking about Himself as the Messiah? It wasn't Messiah. This is important because it tells us how our Lord thought about His ministry and His mission. It tells us how He thought of Himself and how he thought about what he was accomplishing and coming to do. So of all of the Old Testament titles that are available, which one did Jesus choose for himself? The answer is the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title or all of the other titles he uses to refer to himself combined. It's 80-some times in the Gospels. And I used to read this, and I would think, well, that's just the Lord being humble, and He's identifying with His people. He's not exalting Himself. The emphasis must be on His humanity and on His humility, and, and that could be part of it, certainly. It was uh, certainly nobody in all of, uh, all of the world was ever more truly human and truly humble than Christ. But even if His humility and His humanity are in view here and being uh, intended to be conveyed, it's only secondary. It's not the point of that title. Because the title Son of Man is actually one of the most exalted messianic titles in the Old Testament. And you find it in Daniel chapter 7. It's a chapter remarkably similar to what we have just read in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And just to give you the context of Daniel 7, it's also a vision. And in that vision, Daniel sees four beasts coming in succession, and they're violent and they're terrible. And when the fourth comes, it smashes all of the rest with iron. And in the book of Daniel, these beasts are clearly identified as kingdoms or empires. There's first the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians, or the, uh, or the Achaemenid Empire. Then there's the Macedonians under Alexander the Great and the successor states that come from it. And finally, the Romans who conquer them all. And it's during this fourth empire, the Romans, that this vision Daniel is having is interrupted. Because it is during the time of this empire that, that a new kingdom will be established. A kingdom that will reign forever. And its king will be the Son of Man. And so as Daniel is watching the fourth beast, the vision changes. And in verse 9 of chapter 7, he sees a throne. And on the throne is one who is called the Ancient of Days. And it's a picture of God. His throne is a flame of fire. Thousands of thousands serve Him. His hair is long and white. He's wise. But he, he isn't just sitting there doing nothing. He has summoned all of His subjects for judgment. 
And what you have in Daniel 7 is a heavenly court. And when the court is called to order, the books are opened. It's to show us that a, a judgment is coming. But before that court is called to order and before the judgment begins, those other kingdoms are addressed. The fourth beast is killed. The rest of the beasts are subjected to God. Authority is taken from them. And it's about to be given to somebody else. And in verse 13, this somebody else appears. It says, Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this, and so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And so you see what's going on here in this vision that Daniel has. The nations have raged against God, but the Son of Man has conquered them and been given their people for His own. He will inaugurate a kingdom that will never pass away, and He will have dominion over wherever those other kings reigned. Now the important question here is when did this happen? Did this happen sometime in the past, like when Daniel saw it? Has it happened? Is it going to happen in the future? Is it something yet to come? When did this take place? Well, fortunately, Peter tells us in his sermons and prayers in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. This began with the crucifixion and ascension of Christ. His enemies in that moment were stripped of authority and His kingdom was established. It was begun. It was inaugurated. It happened. And now we are in the period of gathering that kingdom into that kingdom, all peoples from all over the world working toward final judgment. And in Daniel's vision, he looked forward to what would take place on that day when judgment would be pronounced on the enemies of God and their authority taken away and given to the Son of Man so that people from every kingdom of the world would worship Him. And where Daniel's vision looks forward to this happening, John's vision looked backward to when it did. But they're both looking at the same event. They're both looking at the cross of Christ and His ascension. And so this vision from Daniel, really, it's, it's in the background. It is the background, the backdrop that should be in our minds helping us to understand what's taking place here. Daniel saw in part, we see more fully, and one day we'll understand in full, but all are working together to show us what's happening here. I mean, have you ever, uh, how many of you have ever had to work with some mechanism or fix something and figure out how it worked? What do you do? 
to get a clearer picture, you take it, you'll pick it up, you'll look at it from one direction, or maybe you'll, if you can't pick it up, you'll walk around, you'll look at it from different angles, and having approached it from all of these different angles, now you have a, a good idea of what's going on. Well, that's what's happening in these chapters. The picture's clear. We look at it from before, we look at it from after, we get a clear picture. There is a king. There is a ruler, the Son of Man, who has been given all authority over all of the kings of the earth by the Lord God Almighty. And it is with this divine authority that He will rule them, divide them, He will establish His own kingdom that will never end, and finally judge them. And that's the, the direction of this vision in this second section of Revelation, the Sovereign Son of Man. And everything that we're going to encounter in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 are working toward the fulfillment and the re revealing of what that means, that Christ is the Son of Man. And so here in Revelation, we begin in verse 1. John sees a scroll, and the scroll is written on the front and on the back sealed with seven seals, and it's held in the hand of him who is seated on the throne. An angel then goes out and delivers a proclamation to all of creation. Who is worthy? He's looking for someone. Who is worthy to come and to open the scroll? Everybody hears, but no one comes forward. There's not a single person can be found. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one dares come and take the scroll out of his hand, let alone break the seals and read it. Not a single being in all creation. You know, I, I hear this and I think, uh, you know, us sometimes in our, in our hubris, how often would we think, I would go and take it. I'm in, I can do all of these things. There are certain things that we cannot do. Not a single being in all creation is worthy to go and take this scroll from the hand of God and break its seals and read it. And John recognizes this almost immediately. And when he does, he weeps. When he discovers that nobody is able to open the scroll, John sees this and he is inconsolable. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. Anytime I've read this passage in the past, this part always embarrassed me. And the reason it embarrassed me is because when I read it, I knew that something very important was happening and I had no idea what it could possibly be. I couldn't understand why John was acting the way he was. I mean, the only other time you really hear of a disciple weeping like this is Peter and that's when he betrays Christ. And I don't mean to say that John betrayed anybody, but there's an emotional intensity happening here, and I was reading it and just shrugging my shoulders. I had no idea what was going on. Something very significant, obviously. I don't know what it is. No, I, I get it. Whatever the scroll is saying, it's important. Whatever's on the scroll, it needs to be read. But I could not, for the life of me, figure out why it was significant enough to provoke this kind of response from John. Right? It wasn't, eventually someone will come and open it. He knows. No one was found worthy. And John is weeping inconsolably. By the way, this, uh, this will maybe help you when you're studying the Bible and you come across something like this where there is such sobriety and people are expressing deep emotions and you read about it and you have no idea why they're reacting the way they are and where this emotional intensity is coming from. 
it's a good practice to mark those places down and try to understand what's happening because it's usually very important. And that's what I had to do here. And I thought, well, I've read Revelation before and took your notes on it. I'll go back and I'll check my notes. And I went back and I checked my notes. And uh, on this verse, it just had a big question mark. <laughs> so uh, a few commentaries later, I had a bit of a better grasp of what was going on. You see, in ancient times, kings would enact their rule through edicts and decrees. So if a king wanted something done, he would make known what he wanted done by writing it down or having it written it down by dictating it to a scribe, and then it would be given to the appropriate party, and then it would be carried out. And those decrees were written on scrolls, and these scrolls were sealed with the royal insignia. It was a piece of clay or a piece of wax that was put on the seal and then stamped into it, usually with the ring that bore the king's image or a, a symbol or a logo of the king. It was his insignia, his stamp, and it represented his authority, kind of like we would put a, a signature today. But the king, being the king, would not personally carry out those decrees. They would be taken to the appropriate place, given to the appropriate people, someone with an, uh, the authority to open them and read them and then carry out the command of the king. Someone who was worthy and invested with the authority of the one from the throne. That's who would do it. And that's what's happening here. The decrees of God are written down. The decrees of God are about to be enacted. But there is no one able to do it. There is nobody qualified. No one is given that kind of authority. And that's what John sees. Nobody is able to do the will of this great king. In this scroll in particular, we're told that it is written on both sides. Well, that means it's filled. In other words, it is complete. There is no room left to add anything in. It's total. And what this scroll represents is God's eternal edicts and decrees. It has His comprehensive plan for the universe throughout all time concerning all the creatures that He has made. It's His all-encompassing decrees. And it's sealed with nobody from one end of creation to the other able to open the seals and bring these decrees to pass. So John weeps. And the reason John weeps is because if the seals are not broken, then the scroll cannot be read. And if the scroll is not read, God's Word cannot be carried out. And if God's Word is not carried out, then all of His promises fall to the ground void. If a worthy one isn't found, God's plan will not unfold. It will remain sealed up, undisclosed, and unfulfilled. Uh, Hendrickson here, he says... If the scroll is not opened, it means that there will be no protection for God's children in the hour of trial. There will be no judgments upon the unjust persecuting world. There will be no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heaven, no new earth, and no future inheritance. If this scroll is not opened, then all of the promises of God contained therein will fail. Every believer will have died in vain. There will be no resurrection. There will be no future. There will be no justice. Nothing. And so you see why John weeps. No one in the retinue of heaven or in all creation is found worthy to take and open the scroll and fulfill the promises of God. But there is one who stepped into creation. 
the eternal Son, the one who said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in verse 5, he enters into the picture. One of the elders looks to John and says, Weep no more. Behold, one has been found worthy to open the scroll. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has conquered and he is able to take the scroll and break its seals and he will govern the universe according to the Father's plan. And you're ready at this point to see this majestic, mighty warrior king, aren't you? That's what you expect. That's how he's described. If you didn't read ahead, that's what you would expect. The lion, scepter in hand, crown on his head, crushing his enemies. Or the root of David, great and undefeated, the king of God's people. Now, how many of you have ever read or seen uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? C.S. Lewis. Do you remember the final battle? The, the Narnians are, are fighting against the White Witch and her army, and they appear to be losing. But then Aslan finally arrives and he confronts the White Witch. How does it go? It's not this long, protracted battle. He leaps upon her, and with one bite, it's over. There's no struggle. There's no battle once the king of kings arrives. In one swift clenching of his teeth, her reign and her life are brought to an immediate and decisive end. And every battle in the book of Revelation is depicted that way, isn't it? The armies of men are gathered together against the Lord, but when the armies of darkness are assembled and Christ enters into the field... It's like Psalm 2 or 2 Kings 18 or, or what you see in Revelation 20. The armies have assembled, but the moment the battle begins, it's over. The Lord defeats them instantaneously, sweeping them away like dust from a, from a counter. That's what happens and will come to anyone who persists against the Lord. There won't be a great struggle or battle in the end. He'll, he'll blow them away like a breath from His mouth. And we know this. We know this to be true. We know that's what becomes of anyone who refuses to love the Lord. We know how this story ends. But did you know that in Scripture, that's not presented to us as our victory? That it's not put forward as our great hope and how we triumph? It's put forward as God's judgment on the nations. But it's not the ultimate victory of God's people. God's people are not victorious by crushing their enemies. That's not how Christ conquered, and it's not how we are called to conquer either. Jesus said, it is finished. When? Not at Armageddon, but at Calvary. That is where the victory was won, where Christ conquered by laying down His life, and His glory wasn't diminished there. It was amplified. I mean, often as believers, we think, well, we will be victorious in the end. And that's true. But we're victorious now. The Christian message is that Christ and in Christ, we are victorious already today. And what's left is really just, just kind of a, a mopping up until the end. The true victory came when Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again. Now, of course, that's not how it often feels or looks, is it? And that's not how we often think about victory. We want a triumphant lion and are less eager to follow a slain lamb. Something I have to keep reminding myself about. Christ didn't conquer like the world conquers. 
The world conquers by force. The world conquers by coercion. The world conquers with fear. Christ didn't use those weapons in His warfare. He used the weapons of prayer, of preaching, of discipleship, and most importantly, of sacrifice. So that when His blood was spilled and His life drained away, that wasn't when He was defeated. That was when He was victorious. Now, it didn't look that way, of course. But it was His moment of victory, not defeat. And what's happening in Revelation 5 is affirming that. You want to know where He became the Lion and the conquering King? It was through His suffering. And when John turns around to look for this Lion, this Davidic King, instead he sees a slain Lamb. Now, of course, John would have been prepared for this. He wrote about it numerous times in his Gospel. In John 12, 31, for example, Jesus is heading towards the cross. He says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John knew that when Christ went to the cross, it marked the end of Satan's reign. Two chapters later in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. You see what Jesus is saying? He's about to go and to do combat with the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and he will win. And he will do it by his death and resurrection. In John 16, 11, anticipating the cross, Jesus says that the ruler of this world has been judged. Judgment is past. It's only a matter now of being carried out. And, and in a way, we are living in this in-between time where God's enemies have been subdued, judgment has been decided, the sentences have been read. They just haven't been carried out yet. And there are many more battles to be fought and to be won. But they'll be won the same way, by laying down our lives sacrificially like Christ. This teaches us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be like Christ. And if we're modeling our lives off of His example, we want to advance His kingdom and grow spiritually, and, and we expect to overcome and conquer, it's only be going to be done by following the path that He exampled for us. He has triumphed. He has triumphed for us. And we participate in it by doing what He did. And He conquered through suffering. It's again, it's one of those heavenly realities that seems so backwards. No one really thinks the meek will inherit the earth. It's the powerful. It's the ruthless who get ahead in business. The, the religion with political clout behind it, that's the one that will dominate in the land. And that's true for a little while. But not in the long run. In the long run, those who were ruthless and powerful and influential and violent will long be judged and condemned. And it is the meek and the merciful, and those who in some ways were the victims of this age, who will reign. That's what we read later on, isn't it? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So understand, whenever the Bible speaks about victory over our enemies, over our opponents, it's almost always recognized as victory through sacrifice and victory through suffering and a victory that's already been secured. That can be hard for us to hear. It can be even harder for us to grasp in this modern age. In a way, we've become uh, Hollywoodized in our thinking and we, 
we forget that there's pain and struggle and loss even for the victorious. You know, just consider, you, know, you want to you wanna conquer, you want to be triumphant, you want to be a victor in Christ. Well, consider wars in times past. We just observed Remembrance Day on November 11th. Who did we remember? Those who laid down their lives in the world wars. The world wars and beyond. Well, just wait a minute. We were on the winning side. The Allies were victorious, and we can rejoice for that. But was it free? Was it cheap? Victory was won, but at the cost of how many sons and fathers? You understand, no victory comes without a price. And nowhere is this clearer than for the Christian. We are counted, Paul says, as sheep to be slaughtered. And let that sink in. Jesus says, I send you out as lambs, sheep amongst wolves. What does that look like, sending out a sheep in the pack of hungry wolves? Let that be a guide to how you think about your life here in this world. Physically, we're destroyed. We're struck down. We're persecuted. We're crushed. We're like a mist that vanishes. But spiritually and eternally, we are victorious. And it's not victorious in spite of our sufferings. The lion is called the lion because he was the slain lamb. And we conquer by our divinely orchestrated trials and persecutions. They are the, the tactics that the Lord uses to bring about triumph. Which is why so often in the Bible, wherever you see the word trial or suffering or persecution, you also see the word rejoice and joy. So don't begrudge them. Rejoice in them. Because God is at work in every insult, in every loss, in every harassment, discrimination, all of it in order to make you more like His Son, in order to make your rewards in heaven greater, and in order to lead you to victory in Christ. But we also rejoice because our Christianity doesn't end in suffering. Christ's death and burial was His victorious moment, but it wasn't the end. He didn't win a victory that he never got to see. He won the victory through death and was raised again to glorious life. He was restored and everything, everything his faithfulness cost him was returned. And the great hope for the believer is not only that we'll be victorious and then die. It's not only that we'll be triumphant in the end through much tribulation. It is that everything lost will be restored tenfold by Christ, a hundredfold in Christ, and it will be incalculably beyond the value of the cost. And the Lord Jesus is our example of this, isn't it? This is the Christian way. Christ is our example of what it means to be a lion. It means to be the sacrificial lamb. In John's Gospel, uh, you know, in the New Testament, 32 times Jesus is called the lamb. Lamb of God. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Paul calls him our Passover Lamb. Both of those point to the sacrificial nature of Christ. He came to save His people from their sins and to set them free. 
And for us to be set free, for our enemies to be defeated, it meant death for the Lord Jesus, like a lamb on the altar. This is why he is called the Lamb of God. But of those 32 references to Jesus as the Lamb, 28 of them are in the book of Revelation. It's not an accident. The book of Revelation is the book of the tri... Uh, uh, Dennis Johnson has a book, a commentary on Revelation, called The Triumph of the Lamb. Whenever Jesus is portrayed as a lamb in Scripture, he's slain. It's the triumph of the suffering servant of God. And this is how Jesus chose to show Himself to a suffering church. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is the One who suffered. And nothing that we endure or will endure is foreign to Him. He suffered too. And He suffered far worse than any of us. And He did it for us. You know what that means? It means that He could not be more sympathetic or more compassionate towards His people. And, and in this book, Jesus really is commanding His church into the breach. He is commanding them to endure, not to retreat, not to take a step back, but to advance at great cost into a spiritual warfare that manifests itself in the physical world by persecution and by pain. But He never commands us, listen, to march where He has not already marched. And He never orders us into a breach that He has not already cleared. And He never sends us into a battle that He has not already won or against an enemy that He Himself has not mortally wounded. And because He has been there and been through it all and come out on the other side a champion, He knows what we need and He knows how to lead and He knows how to bring us with Him to the other side. He is the victorious Lamb. And in verse 6, the end of the chapter, all attention is now fixed on Him. He is described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. And this is a, a further description of His power and His wisdom and His might. In the ancient world, horns were a picture of strength. Animals used their horns to gore their enemies and establish dominance. Animals still do today, you just don't see it as often. But the horns were associated with strength and, and the ability to enforce one's will and to subdue one's opponents. The number seven, again, is the number of perfection and of completeness. What's well, the picture? The lamb has absolute power to bend the entire creation to His will. Nothing can stand against Him. And He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. This comes from Zechariah 4. We don't have time to go back to it, but it's, it's seven eyes, sight, and seven, the number of completeness. He sees all things perfectly. Nothing escapes His vision or His understanding. It speaks of His knowledge and His omniscience. He knows what's going on. He is all wise. He comprehends all things. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And you put those together and you, you get the point. It's very simple. That the Lord Jesus knows everything that's going on because He has ordained it. He knows exactly what to do because He is all wise and He has the power to do it. And what does this mean? Believer, you can rest assured that the Lord Jesus, carrying out the Father's will in this world, will never, ever do anything wrong. In Genesis 19, Abraham discovers 
God shows him what he's going to do. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's great concern is that God might sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That he would treat the righteous and the wicked both alike. And the Lord assures him that's not going to happen. The Lord will never sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And in 2 Peter, we're reminded that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this is important to keep in mind because in verse 7, Christ comes and He takes the scroll. He's going to carry out that divine plan. And in that plan, there are going to be many trials on the earth. Chapter 6 is full of them. But in them... Christ will be bringing the promises of God and the will of God to pass. And so when he takes this decree, all of heaven, all of earth erupt in praise and worship because it is the only appropriate response. The elders hold out golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's one of those places where the symbolism in the book is explained to us so clearly. Incense is the prayers of the saints. And the picture you get are, are the God's people praising the Lord through their prayers. The elders praising Him with harps. All of creation worshiping the Lord God because He is going to carry out the Father's will. He is going to complete all of the promises. He is going to take His position as the King and judge the earth. Let me just read again how heaven and earth Respond when the Lamb takes the scroll. We'll have to take a look at this next week. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders bowed down and worshipped. God is supreme. His throne is secure. All of creation is subject to His will. The Lamb reigns and the Lamb is worthy. He alone can fulfill the will of His Father. And He has ransomed for Himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And for those reasons, His people don't need, be, be, uh, need to be afraid of tribulation or persecution or whatever may come. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only one we can entrust with our future hope. Oh, people look in so many places. They look to medicine, to education, to government, to military might, technology. They look for their hope in the future in all of those places. Now all of those things have their proper place, but none of them have the power to save or to preserve. And none of them are worthy of our worship or our adoration or our ultimate trust. Christ alone is worthy. 
He is the one who has ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the one who is able to approach the throne and take the scroll out of the hand of the Ancient of Days. And He alone is the one who can save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, You are so far beyond what we're able to comprehend or take in. You are so great. What human language could ever adequately describe You? Lord, I pray that You would use Your Word this morning and have used Your Word to edify Your people and to glorify Your name and to give glory to Your Son. Thank You that You have, have taught us how to live pleasing to You in this world. And thank You, Lord, that, that even though in this world we have trouble, You have overcome the world. Lord, You never lead us where You haven't taken us. You'll never lead us where You haven't already been and been victorious. We have great hope. And all of our hope, Lord, is in You. All of our trust is in You. And all of our worship is for You. Lord, help us. Help us to fix our eyes and our adoration on the only place worthy of worship. You and Your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would be able to sing with all creation, Worthy is the Lamb and the One on the throne. God on His throne and the Lamb, Lord. Thank You. Amen.